your hand in a little while. We won't be using it here for a bit, but in a while we will be. Well, as you may know, this year, 2017, is the, fifth, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It was on October 31, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. October 31 on our calendar is Halloween. October 31 on the church calendar is All Hallows' Eve. That's actually the word Halloween comes from All Hallows' Evening. The next day, November 1, is All Saints' Day. And all that to say, Martin Luther chose All Hallows' Eve as the day to post his list of 95 questions, uh, propositions for debate, a list expressing his concerns about the excesses, the abuses, the heresies in the Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't out to start a new denomination. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church, but that, of course, didn't happen, and the Protestant Church was born. Now, let's move ahead a decade to the year 1527. Martin Luther was 43 years old. It was one of the most trying years of his life. In April of that year, he had a dizzy spell that forced him to stop speaking in the middle of a sermon. In July, he and his wife had friends over to dinner, and during the evening, there was this intense buzzing in his ear that became so severe, he was convinced he was going to die before the night was over. And then in the midst of these health issues, he was having his ongoing battles with the Catholic Church here 10 years later, including the burning at the stake of a friend of his who was a fellow reformer who would refuse to recant his protestations, his Protestant beliefs. Luther became deeply disturbed and angry. A severe depression set in. And just as an aside, you know, we have to be careful when we take a closer look at some of our Christian heroes and all of a sudden we find out they're very human. Uh, his doctor helped him regain some of his strength, but the depression came back again and again through the rest of the year in August and September, again later in December. One of the things that happened in August, a plague erupted in Wittenberg. Many people left town. Luther was urged to leave, but he felt it was his duty to stay and care for the sick. Though his wife was pregnant, they turned their house into a hospital. They watched many of their friends die. A son of theirs became ill. Didn't die, fortunately, but he became ill from it. That plague lasted for over three months. Well, during that horrific year, Martin Luther did take time to reflect on the 10th anniversary of his posting of the 95 Theses, contemplating the deeper meaning of all that he had been through. And he had this to say, the only comfort that year against the raging Satan is that we have God's word to save the souls of believers. And he expounded on that thought with the help of Psalm 46. And the end result of that Bible study was a song that's become known as the Battle Hymn of the Reformation. We're going to take a closer look at that hymn this morning, but before we do that, we're going to take a look at Psalm 46 itself. And before we do that, we're going to take a look at the event in Israel's history that could likely have been the basis for the writing of Psalm 46. So with all that, turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. You'll remember that the nation Israel had divided into two kingdoms following the death of Solomon back in 1 Kings. The northern kingdom, Israel, was eventually taken captive by the Assyrians. We read about that right here in 2 Kings 17. And now in chapter 18, Hezekiah becomes king of Judah, the southern kingdom, Hezekiah's father Ahaz 
had been pretty much a, a puppet of Assyria, and Hezekiah decided to break free from that domination. So Assyria's king Sennacherib responds by invading Judah, defeating the fortified cities on his march to Jerusalem. You see that in verse 13. Hezekiah panics. He tries to buy him off. Verse 15, all the silver in Solomon's temple as well as his own treasury. Verse 16, the gold from the doors and the posts of the temple. Assyria takes the silver and gold, but they're not about to abandon the invasion. They try to get Judah to just surrender to avoid battle. Judah gets a brief reprieve when Sennacherib has to go tend to some other business, but with a promise that he will return and finish the job. So during that reprieve in chapter 19, Hezekiah takes it to the Lord in prayer. In fact, a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles says the prophet Isaiah joined Hezekiah in praying. And I should mention there's actually two parallel passages to this, one in 2 Chronicles, another one in the book of Isaiah as well. But here in 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 20, we have God's answer given through Isaiah, assuring Hezekiah that God would give him the victory over this overwhelmingly powerful enemy, Assyria. And look how that happens, starting in verse 35, 2 Kings 19, 35. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went home, and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. Sennacherib was an enemy of God's people. He was an enemy of God himself, and he came to a just end. Now, Bible scholars tell us that this historic event could very well be the basis for the writing of Psalm 46, and we're going to proceed with that assumption. And it might be helpful to just leave your Bibles open here in 2 Kings and now take that bulletin insert, and we're going to look at the 46th Psalm there in your left column. Incidentally, King Hezekiah was a poet, and it's possible he actually wrote this psalm, as well as 47 and 48, the three together form a kind of trilogy. Well, Psalm 46 is called an enthronement psalm, enthronement, along with a half dozen other psalms, meaning the Lord is enthroned over and above everything and everybody. And like many Old Testament passages, there seems to be a, a near view and a far view here, uh, celebrating this incredible victory over Assyria, but also looking ahead prophetically to the second coming of Messiah when Christ the King sets up his millennial kingdom. There's an emphasis in this psalm on the presence of the Lord with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to see that throughout the psalm, specifically in verses 7 and 11. King Hezekiah and Judah have just experienced God's presence in a miraculous way, and they celebrate with the praises of Emmanuel. All right, looking at verse 1. We're in your left column now. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's our refuge. Refuge as he's our shelter from danger. He's our strength, our courage in danger, shelter from danger, courage in danger. Scholars tell us these two words together, refuge and strength, speak of an impenetrable defense. You know, while other nations, including Assyria, boasted of their impenetrable fortresses high up on these inaccessible cliffs guarded by their fiercest warriors, Israel has something infinitely better. We have something infinitely better. God is our refuge and strength, our shelter and courage, our impenetrable defense, and he's a very present help in trouble. Emmanuel, God with us. What a promise. 
If you have the New American Standard Version, you'll see an alternate reading in the margin that says he's abundantly available for help in tight places. God, our refuge and strength, abundantly available. He's not an absentee protector who may or may not be there when you need him. Rather, he's a very present help, abundantly available. Incidentally, present help can also mean well-proved. Not only is he present, he's also a proven entity. We know he's capable of providing that refuge. Verse 2, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, whatever happens, it might be literal volcanoes and earthquakes and floods, hurricanes, tsunamis, climate change. Or maybe it symbolizes nations, crumbling societies, kingdoms toppling, political, economic, social troubles we see so much of all over the world today, including here at home. Whatever it is, we will not fear. Beginning in verse 2, therefore, we will not fear. Pastor of the first church in which I served liked to say, when you see a therefore, look and see what it's there for. Well, why do we have a therefore at the beginning of verse 2? Because of verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. We know that our God is infinitely greater than any trouble that can come our way. And Luther had plenty of troubles coming his way that year. And so did King Hezekiah 2,000 plus years before that. Verse 3 ends with that word selah. As you may know, no one knows for sure what that means or how to pronounce it. Selah, selah. It may simply be an instruction to the musicians. It could very well mean stop, pause, let's Meditate on that for a moment. Musical term could indicate an interlude where the voices stop singing while the instruments continue to play. And while they play, we can give some thought to what we've just sung. Whatever happens, we will not fear. God is our refuge. Remember the Psalms? The Psalms is a hymn book. Okay? The, the children of Israel would have been singing this song at some point. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. A great fear of an ancient city in time of war was that their water supply would be cut off during a siege. Jerusalem did not and does not have a river flowing through it. It's up on a hill. Actually, it's interesting to see what King Hezekiah did to prepare for the invasion of Sennacherib and the Assyrians. We won't take time to look it up, but in the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles, we see them cutting off the spring water that would be available to the Assyrian army and also building a tunnel to bring water into the city of Jerusalem. It actually emptied into the pool of Siloam. Remember Christ healing the blind man in John 9, having him go wash in the pool of Siloam. But that aside, the psalmist says there is a river. Jerusalem doesn't have a river, but a river provides for an ordinary city. God provides for the city of God, for us, his people. God himself is the river providing life and refreshment, a continual outpouring of blessing that sustains us. Isaiah tells us the Lord provides peace like a river to those who heed his commandments. Incidentally, both Ezekiel and Zechariah tell us that in the millennial Jerusalem, there will be a river flowing from the temple, starting as a trickle, turning into a river deep enough to swim in, symbolizing that continued, increasing outpouring of God's blessing on his people. And then, of course, Revelation 22 tells us in the New Jerusalem, there will be a river flowing from the throne of God itself. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
Again, God's not an absentee deliverer who will be glad to help if he's around and available. God is in the midst of her, Emmanuel, God with us. She shall not be moved. For her to be moved, God would have to be moved. He's right there in the midst of his city, in the midst of his people. God will help her when morning dawns. Military attacks were typically launched at dawn. At sunrise, God will be there. We read in 2 Kings 19.35 that the people of Jerusalem got up early in the morning, perhaps in the anticipation of today being the day they're going to attack us. And what did they find instead? 185,000 corpses. Verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. When God speaks in his wrath, the earth and its people will melt in subservience. An apt description of what's going to happen when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And the psalm's going to end with those same words. Bible scholars characterize God as both transcendent and imminent. He's transcendent. He's the God who is out there over and above all his creation, the enthroned God. But he's also imminent, Emmanuel, the God who is right here in our midst. And to avoid any confusion, there's actually two same-sounding words in our Christian vocabulary. We talk about imminent, I-M-M-I, imminent, meaning it could happen any time. Christ's return is imminent. But then this word is immanent, it's an A, I-M-M-A. It looks like Emmanuel, and that's what it means, God with us. We see both transcendence and imminence here in verse 7. First, the Lord of hosts is with us. That phrase, Lord of hosts, the Hebrew is Yahweh Sabaoth. It's a, it's a military term referring to God being the commander of the angelic armies of heaven and the armies of Israel. David faced Goliath with these words, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you, Goliath, have defied. The name Lord of hosts emphasizes God's sovereignty, his omnipotence. If you have the NIV, it translates it, the Lord Almighty. Verse 7, the transcendent Lord Almighty is with us. Next phrase, here comes the eminent God. The God of Jacob is our fortress, our stronghold, our high, safe place. You know, Jacob, of course, had his name changed to Israel after wrestling with God in Genesis 32. You may remember the name Jacob means supplanter, deceiver, cheater. He stole his brother Esau's birthright and blessing. Here in verse 7, this God of the angelic hosts is also the God of that unworthy sinner. One commentator said it this way, the God who is infinitely high is also intimately nigh. Infinitely high, intimately nigh. Transcendent, imminent. Then we come to the last word in the verse, Selah. And even if Selah doesn't mean to stop and think about it, there's certainly nothing wrong with stopping and thinking about it. God, who is infinitely high, is also intimately nigh. Verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. When morning dawns, end of verse 5, come, behold the works of the Lord. For Hezekiah and his people that morning, it was 185,000 corpses. Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. 
War chariots were a major component of Sennacherib's army, Assyria's Assyrian army. Back in 2 Kings, Isaiah refers to King Sennacherib boasting about his multitude of chariots. He burns the chariots with fire. But looking beyond that, many scholars see these verses as referring to the end of the Great Tribulation, the establishment of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Isaiah looks forward to that day when swords will be beaten into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. A nation shall not learn to war anymore. Ain't going to study war no more, as the old spiritual says. Isn't that something to look forward to in our war-weary world? Verse 10. Notice the quotation marks. God speaks. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This verse has brought comfort to countless saints over the centuries. It's been the basis of many songs and choruses. There's actually another school of thought out there that says the context of this verse would indicate this is not intended as a quieting, comforting call to worship. The context is God's judgment. Probably the great tribulation culminating in the battle of Armageddon, the enthronement of Christ as king over the earth. And in preparation for that coming judgment, you need to stop. Be still and acknowledge that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. There's a similar verse in Habakkuk 2 where it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's often been used as a call to worship over the centuries. But the context indicates it's actually a call to stand silent before God as he executes judgment. Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And again, the context there is God's judgment on the nations in the tribulation. Be still, keep silent, stand in awe before God, the almighty judge. But either way, whether it's be still in observing God's judgment or be still in the knowledge and comfort of God our refuge, which is a legitimate way to look at it. Either way, the bottom line could be the same. We have a God who has acted mightily on behalf of his people from ancient history on to today and will continue to do so. And it has brought him and will continue to bring him recognition. I will be exalted in the earth. This is a theme over and over in the Psalms and many other Old Testament passages. It will culminate in Christ's second coming when he defeats the nations at Armageddon and establishes that earthly kingdom. Verse 11, this Lord of hosts is with us. This God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah, be still. Know those truths. You know, we often sing those praises. Sometimes we need to just silently reflect on them. James Thompson was a Scottish poet. He was raised as a small town preacher's kid back in the 1700s. He's around today. We'd claim as an Arch, as an Arch May kid. He wrote a poem, and he entitled it Him, H-Y-M-N, Him. It includes this memorable line. Come then, expressive silence. Muse his praise. Muse, give thoughtful consideration to who God is and what he's done for you. Come then, expressive silence. Muse his praise. Sometimes we just need to praise him with silence as we stand in awe of the Lord Almighty. Back to Martin Luther. There were two things that were of particular importance to him as he led the Reformation in Germany. Number one, he wanted the German people to have the Bible in their own language. 
Up to that point, they basically heard it in Latin, which they didn't understand. That's why Luther himself translated the Bible into German. Number two, he wanted them to have a hymn book in German. Up to that time, most singing in the church was in Latin, and it was almost exclusively done by priests and choirs, choirs of priests. He wanted to bring singing back into the pews, and that's why he began writing and encouraging others to write German hymns. So Luther wanted a German Bible so that God might speak directly to them through his word, and he wanted a German hymnal so that they might answer directly to God in their songs. And as for Psalm 46, Martin Luther found this psalm to be a very comforting and encouraging one as he faced all those problems and trials in that year 1527, and it prompted him to write a hymn based on it, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. All 150 psalms have been versified or prayer phrased so they could be more easily set to music in non-Hebrew language. You know, Hebrew poetry is very different from our Western poetry. Well, Luther's philosophy instead was to turn a psalm into a hymn, and by that I mean this. Rather than just trying to follow as close as we can, word by word and line by line, let's just take the subject of the psalm and let's write a hymn based on it, trying to, tying in the various parts of the psalm as they fit, bringing in other passages from all over the Bible as they fit as well. And if Jesus Christ is seen in the psalm, then let's talk specifically about Jesus Christ in the hymn. Well, let's end our time by taking a look at the end result of Luther doing that with Psalm 46. And for this, we move to the right side of your sheet. And to make it uh, a little simpler to understand as I talk, technically, a hymn has stanzas, uh, poetry has verses, so we're looking at verses in the psalm. I should do it backwards here. We're looking at verses in the psalm. We're looking at stanzas in the hymn as we go back and forth here. So stanza one, a mighty fortress is our God. God's called a fortress about 15 times in Scripture. Usually it's, it's mostly in the book of Psalms, and usually it's with another descriptive word, you know, a rock and fortress, a, a refuge and fortress. He's a loving God and fortress. And we, of course, find it right here in Psalm 46 in verses 7 and 11. The God of Jacob is our fortress. A bulwark never failing. Bulwark, a, a defense, a protection never failing. Zephaniah 3.5 says God never fails, though the fortresses of his enemies are devastated. God is our refuge and strength. Verse 1 in our psalm, our fortress and bulwark. Our helper, he, also verse 1 in our psalm, a very present help. In trouble. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. The word mortal means of this world, earthly. God prevails over the earthly ills, which are many. Luther had a flood of them that year. Look at the next line. For still our ancient foe, that of course speaks of Satan, our adversary. The word Satan actually comes from a Hebrew word meaning adversary. He's an ancient foe, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and he was God's foe before that. Our ancient foe doth seek to work us well. Remember 1 Peter 5, 8? Be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our ancient foe doth seek to work us well. What should you do about it? Well, Peter tells us in the next verse, he says, resist him. Resist him. James 4, 7 adds, when you do that, when you resist him, what happens? He will flee from you. Next line. His craft and power are great. His craft, his skill in deceiving. Revelation 12, 9 calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. 
2 Corinthians 11.14, he disguises himself as an angel of light. His craft is great, his power is great. John 12.31, he's the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2, he's the prince of the power of the air. That's why he could offer all the kingdoms of this world to Jesus when he tempted him in Matthew 4. You know, when we sing Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, we quote Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Satan was trying to get Christ to take it ahead of time, ahead of schedule, in exchange for Christ worshiping him. Next line, armed with cruel hate. Armed with cruel hate. 1 John 3 contrasts the children of God who are characterized by love with the children of the devil who are characterized by hate. John gives the example of Cain killing his brother Abel. Cruel hate. Cruel helps explain some of the terribly cruel and unbelievably horrible things going on in our world today and have been going on since time immemorial. Incidentally, the Assyrians back in Hezekiah's day were known for their unspeakably cruel treatment of war prisoners, which is one reason why Jonah didn't want Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Jonah didn't want Nineveh to repent. They deserve to die. Armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. We're talking about Satan. On earth is not as equal. Don't think you're a match for Satan. Martin Luther once said this, Don't argue with the devil. He has 5,000 years' experience. He's tried out all his tricks on Adam, Abraham, and David. He knows exactly the weak spots. Don't argue with the devil. There's an interesting verse in the little book of Jude where Michael the archangel was confronted by Satan in a dispute over the body of Moses. And Jude says, Michael did not dare rebuke Satan, but left that up to God. If an archangel takes that position, who are we to try to do better? And if you want to know what that verse is all about, ask Pastor Dan, he'll explain it to you. All right, let's move on to stanza two. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. While Judah was waiting for the invasion from Assyria, King Hezekiah encouraged the people with these words. He said, don't be afraid of the king of Assyria, for we have the Lord our God on our side to fight our battles. They were in a hopeless situation, humanly speaking. We could say the same for Martin Luther when he was writing these words. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Ephesians 6, be strong in what? In the Lord, in the strength of his might, but on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Over and over in the Psalms, in the Old Testament in particular, we see the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my strength. It's not, it's not my own. Did we in our own strength confide, we would lose. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Who's that, you ask? Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. He's the right man, the God-man, the Son of God, Son of Man. In Matthew 12, 18, Jesus quotes Isaiah as referring to the coming Messiah when Isaiah quotes God as saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. He's the man of God's own choosing. Lord Sabaoth, his name, that would be a transliteration of that Yahweh Sabaoth in the Old Testament. There's that Lord of hosts that we see in verses 7 and 11 of our psalm. Speaking of an all-powerful sovereign. He's above all human and superhuman forces, including Satan. And incidentally, this is a clear affirmation by Martin Luther of the deity of Christ when Luther refers to him as Lord of Lords, Lord of Hosts, Lord Almighty. 
Next phrase, from age to age the same. One of God's attributes is immutability. He's unchangeable. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he must win the battle. Go read the last chapter of the book if you need verification of that fact. Maybe it'd be better to say he must win the war. Satan wins a lot of battles, unfortunately, a lot of them within ourselves as believers if we don't resist him. But we know he's going to lose the war. Stanza three. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, the world with devils filled. For Hezekiah, it was that vast, unbeatable Assyrian army. For Luther, it was his health, the plague, persecution. Powers of darkness are strong, especially in pagan countries around the world. I have a son who's pastoring in Malaysia in an international church there, and there are signs of that everywhere there. But unfortunately, it's signs of that more and more right here in our own country. Although this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Verse 2 in our psalm, therefore we will not fear. Why? Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And not only that, but God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. All of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are more than conquerors. I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, speaking of those devils, those demonic forces, nothing shall be able to separate us from Christ. And that goes for, next line, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? 1 John 4, 4, greater is he, the Holy Spirit that is in you, than he, Satan, that is in the world. Why can we endure his rage? For lo, his doom is sure. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived the nations, his craft and power are great. He will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Next line, one little word shall fell him. Verse 6, over in our psalm, God utters his voice, the earth melts. Likewise, God utters his voice, and Satan is doomed. Stanza four. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. Word should probably be capitalized there because it appears to be speaking of Christ. Luther uses a play on words here, ending the third stanza with one little word shall fail him, then starting this stanza with that word, drawing, drawing from John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, that word is above all earthly powers. No thanks to them. Ephesians 1.21, God raised Christ from the dead, set him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Next line, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. The right man, Jesus Christ, is on our side. What did he tell his disciples at the Last Supper? He said, I'm going to be going away, and when I do that, I'm going to send the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look at the next line. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. In Hebrews 10, 34, the author commends those who joyfully accepted the plundering of their belongings, confiscation of their property, knowing that they have a better and enduring possession 
for themselves in heaven. Let goods and kindred go. Let goods go. Let kindred go. Sometimes it's a loss of family. Had, uh, uh, three weeks ago here, for some of you may be aware, in, in Peoria, every first of June, first week of June, they have what they call a Bach Festival. Trinity Lutheran uh, hosts most of it. I was over there one evening for a, they had a Bach cantata based on A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And so in the program, they had the whole German text, which would have been Luther's original hymn and poem. And then it had a literal translation to go with it. You understand that what we have here was just written, uh, whatever, 150 years ago, translated into English. And the translator has to take some liberties to come up with the rhyme and the rhythm and make it into a, a poem. So it doesn't always match exactly. Well, the original words that Martin Luther wrote right here was, you can take my child, remember his son had the plague and could easily have died from that. You can take my wife, she was pregnant, she could easily have caught that plague and died. Sometimes it's the loss of life itself. The body they may kill, take me. But God's truth abideth still. Second Corinthians 13.8, we cannot do anything against the truth. It's going to win out in the end. And then finally, his kingdom is forever. Remember what the, Gabriel told the Virgin Mary in Luke 133 when he announced the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will reign forever and ever. Well, that's the good news for down the road. Uh, what's the good news for us as we go into this new week? Martin Luther found good news in Psalm 46. So can we, among other things. God is my refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, rather I'll be still and know that he is God. We'll be encouraged in remembering that the Lord of hosts, the all-powerful, sovereign God, is with us. He's our fortress, right here with us, whatever is coming in this week ahead. And as we're encouraged by Psalm 46, we can also be encouraged by seeing how Martin Luther was encouraged by Psalm 46, as he faced trials greater than most any of us will ever face. Though this world should threaten to undo us, we know that God's truth is going to ultimately win the day. And therefore, we can endure with God's help, whatever comes. A mighty fortress is our God. Let us pray.